Welcome to the 4th Down Experience, the podcast devoted to special teams. Your host of the 4th Down Experience, former pro free agent, nine-year professional kicking coach out of the Midwest, Coach Chris Hughesby. Alongside Coach Chris Hughesby is a former two-time Arena Bowl champ, nine-year pro kicking coach, rep in the South, Coach Brian Jackson. Experience Podcast. I'm Brian Jackson along with Christopher Hughesby. We are stoked today. We have a legend on the podcast. He is the guy to introduce what's called the drop punt or an Aussie rules kick to the NFL. And uh, he plays the Chargers, a uh, two-time pro bowler. Uh, welcome, Aaron Bennett. How are you, man? Good, Brian. We should start by saying in this podcast, we are 45 minutes into our conversation and we had to hit the call to be able to have this conversation because we're chatting away like we best mate. We haven't seen each other for a while. So, yeah. it's, uh, no, it's, great. it's great to talk to you guys. It really is. Yeah. Well, Darren, thanks for being on the 4th Down Experience podcast. We, You've been on our short list for guys we've wanted to interview for a while, so we're glad to finally have you on. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's good to be in the same time zone as you guys. I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so... It makes it makes it nice and easy to have a chat. Yeah. So, so Darren, kind of going back to the introduction, you know, like yeah. Aussie Aussie rules kick drop punt. If there's like a 16 year old listening right now and they have no clue what we're talking about, <laughs> like what's the quick synopsis as best as you can on on that? Google it. Um, <laughs> Google. Uh, it was so the to me when I first came over. You know, I had Chuck Prefer, who Mike Prefer is uh, the special teams coach at, uh, at Cleveland now. His father, Chuck, was my special teams coach. And, uh, you know, I tried to show him a few of the Australian rules, um, you know, kicks. And really, you know, Chuck and I used to talk, and I said, one of the things that really frustrated me was not being able to control the distance on a spiral and watching other players you know, spiral the ball into the end zone in pooch situations. And Chuck had me hit spirals uh, for my pooches, and I sort of got pretty good at not turning them over and having the, the point come down backwards. But I always knew that the drop punt would be something that I would try. So, you know, I, I did it in NFL Europe. Uh, Al Luganbill, uh, crazy as Al was, you know, he, he was my, my head coach in Amsterdam. And he came up and, and instantly said, you know, show me some of your Australian kicks that we can use in the game. And so that's where I first got to use it. And I felt like if we could keep the ball out of the end zone, it was a huge thing for our defense. And, and so when I first started doing it, you know, Leslie O'Neill, Junior Seau, Ruben Davis, those guys would come out and they would hit me so hard on the head because they were so excited because we put the ball on the five-yard line. And, you know, a lot of times they just stand back and go, well, the punter's probably going to put this in the end zone, so we're going to head out to the 20. So they would be getting super excited about it. So that's when I knew that it was an effective kick in the game. I was still aiming at the 10 at the time. And you look at the guys now, they shaved that ball down to the 5, and guys have got really good at downing that drop punt. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a 16-year-old kid that wants to learn how to punt the drop punt, it's a it's a punt that has no anxiety once you learn how to do it. You know, guys get very anxious trying to perfect the spiral drop. Whereas a drop punt, because you kick through the big volume of the football, you can swing as hard as you like. 
And so uh, I see guys that struggle a bit with spirals but love hitting drop punts, and then in the end, a lot of them, particularly in high school, will go just to the drop punt and use that because it's, they're confident in that kick. Nice. So let me let's set the record straight on this verbiage because I've been corrected a couple times. And I want to make sure because I know you can set the record straight because you will know the answer to this. So like when us Americans say like, all right, guys, uh, we're going to go into rugby rollout punts, all right? And then, oh, we want to see an Aussie, Aussie drop punt. Okay, so like when, when we see the rollout, that two, three, four-step rollout, we're trying to hit kind of a liner or a low liner down in the corner or try to hit some one. Is that, is that accurate? Is that terminology right, saying a rugby rollout? So if you, hit, if you hit a spiral in that situation, yes, that's a rugby rollout. Um, it's, a, it's a kick that they use in rugby to kick for touch or the sideline. But if you hit a drop punt in that situation, then you're hitting an Aussie rules punt. And so uh, you, lo- you look at a lot of the guys now, because there's so many Australians in the NCAA, they actually roll out, but then they hit a drop punt. They're playing Australian rules in that situation. Whereas I think uh, like uh, Johnny uh, Linehan a couple of years ago at BYU, he would do the same thing, but he would hit a spiral because he was a rugby player and he was good at doing that. That was his eye-hand coordination was to the spiral, whereas you know all the Australians that are doing it right now, they're hitting a drop punt. They're playing Australian rules football, which are two totally different games. Right, so if you're... On the opposing forty, and you're just you're just hitting a regular two or three step punt, end over end. That's a drop punt. But if someone also says this is an Aussie punt, then then they're correct in saying that as well. Correct. Yeah, it's pretty much the same kick. The same. But but do you guys cringe when you hear that? You rather hear a drop punt? No, it's no, not really. I mean, it's I I take pride in the fact that anyone uses the kick in any game. So I I watched. We had Tom Hutton at OSU, who's an Australian, he's 30 years of age as a, as a freshman, which is sort of interesting, but he hits nothing with drop punts, but he can hit a probably 4.7 second, 45-yard drop punt with his eyes shut. So he's not even attempting spirals. He's just hitting drop punts because he's so good at it. So, you know, whether you call it the Aussie punt or the or the drop punt, um uh, Brad Boyer, who's the special teams coach of the Jets, he calls it the flip. I'm like, okay, everyone's got to have it now. He's invented a kick, apparently. It's the flip kick. <laughs> He's got Lachlan Edwards, who's an Australian, hitting the kick, but he calls it a flip kick. So, whatever. It's, uh, you know, as long as you do it and you do it effectively, I don't really care what you call it. Okay, cool. And so, in, in the rollout, the rugby rollout, you're getting more of a spiral. Uh, uh, a rollout. Aussie, then that, that's that's a rollout with the drop point where you're seeing the end of rotation. Correct. And traditionally, Americans, the, the first guys, when the shield protection first came in in college, the first guys were rolling out and hitting the rugby kick. That, they're Americans. So they're still trying to hit their natural spiral. The, the drop punt hadn't really come in other than in, drop, in pooch pump situations. So the guys that were rolling out with the shield were still trying to spiral for quite a long time. Got it. Nice. So I'm curious, so you're often kind of referenced as the godfather of bringing Australian-type punting. What was your journey like into the league? Because you were, I'm assuming you were one of the first Australians kicker punters into the league. What was yeah, that journey like? So, so for me, we had a long kicking contest in Australia, and 
incidentally, I was at the end of my career, but the guy I beat to win the, the first prize was two tickets to Los Angeles, two plane tickets. And, and so my wife, Rosemary, and I used it as a, as a honeymoon when we got married. But I beat a 19-year-old Ben Graham who was, he was competing against me at the start of his career and I was at the end of my career. So, uh, and I, I beat him by two yards. So I'm, I'm very happy to do that because it would have changed my life if I didn't win those tickets. So anyway, so we, uh, we were on a honeymoon cruising up and down the west coast of the United States when I had my strength coach uh, make contact with a couple of NFL teams who he'd known um, over, over his years and the San Diego Chargers was one of those teams. And so we were in Seattle uh, on a train, an Amtrak trip up and down the West Coast. And uh, I got a call on Tuesday night that said, you know, if you could be in San Diego on a Thursday, you can try out. So we did that. We caught the train all the way down to San Diego and I went and tried out for the Chargers. And, and uh, I did it the first day just out of the hands in the stadium. They just wanted to see if I had you know, the, the leg that they thought. And then after that, uh, they took me out on the practice fields after practice the next day and had Sam Mano, the long snapper, snap me the ball. And uh, the first one hit me right in the face because I had no idea someone could throw a ball through their legs that fast. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought my, my workout was sort of done and gone when I shanked that punt. But the next one I banged 75 yards out of the, into the parking lot hit, hit some cars over the fence. So that sort of woke it back up. So anyway, they they offered me a, um, a a tryout the following year if I would come back. So I came back and ended up on practice squad that year in '94 when the Chargers went to the Super Bowl. So Darren, you know, like obviously you've worked with several NFL punters and college punters and even high school guys um, and even kickers too. And, and also talking the mental aspect, but, but like it, obviously you're a detailed coach, you have a lot of great nuggets. But if you were kind of to give like two or three verbal cues of importance for punting, you know, whether they're like a 5'10 guy or 6'4 guy, which may differentiate in your coaching, I don't know. What would you say to, to those guys? Like, what are two or three things that are key for you to have a successful, normal spiral punt? Yeah, so for me, for a spiral punt, the catch is super important. Um, a lot of guys that have played different positions at high school are taught to catch the back of the ball. And as a punter, you don't want to catch the back of the ball. You want to catch further up on the ball. And the reason is um, the ball gets too far out on your fingers when you drop. You, you tend to uh, punt off the back of the ball. And then the second part for me is, and you know, talking with uh, every punter I've ever talked with, the short first step. And the reason, the reason the short first step is really important is that it keeps you above your hips and balanced. And it allows you to get your full leg swing. Whether you have, you know, a super flexible um, high leg swing, or even if you have a three-quarter leg swing, you can't get a full leg swing if you're behind your hips. And that that long first step really always gets you behind your hips. And and so the short first step and the catch of the ball to me is super important. The other thing that uh, I really stress to guys is in an off season I want you to point your toe and I want you to swing through the ball because a lot of young kids try to generate a spiral by crossing over and as you get bigger and stronger those muscles start to fight against success and so 
if you can if you can work on the flexibility, I would rather you swing half swing straight than full swing across. And I, I think, you know, the straighter you are, the steps towards your target and, and the straighter your leg swing, the better off or more successful you're going to be because then all you have to do is just mess with your drop until you find that contact point. Where I, I find guys that, you know, mess, mess with their drop, but they're also crossing over with their leg swing. So they're really one's chasing the other. The contact is chasing the leg swing and the leg swing is chasing the contact. And when you work on two things like that, it's hard to be successful. So those guys will hit a good spiral every now and then, but they can't really tell you why they've done that. So I think, you know, to me, short first step, point your toe and follow through to your target would be my three things that would be important. Nice. So I got a clarification question with the Aussie drop punt, the end over end, because it's it's becoming very popular because you can control typically where that ball is going to land. So when you're t- teaching traditional punting, you know you tell the the punters to drop the ball middle of the outside shade of your leg, but then when you're dropping the Aussie punt, you drop it inside your leg with the down pointed nose inward a little bit. But I've recently seen some guys drop the ball away, on, but inside their thigh. Is there any sort of benefit to doing it one way or the other? Way, way inside the thigh? Yeah, when they drop it inside their leg for the, the end-over-end punt, but typically the, the nose of the ball that's pointed down is still turned inward to the left a little bit, say on a righty. But I've recently seen some guys start dropping the nose of the ball out to the right, even though it's dropped inside their kicking leg. So are you talking about, are you talking about, first of all, I don't think you should drop it inside the leg. I think it, that, that this is the, it's the misnomer a little bit. It needs to be inside your spiral drop, but only probably an inch. Okay. And so I think people get too caught up in the inside. I think if you, if you're going way inside, it's probably because you cross over on the leg swing. Okay. That, to, to match that leg swing to the contact. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, and then, and then the, the other thing that you want to do is, uh, Brian, you know, if you hit a kickoff with a slower spin, you've usually sweet-spotted that ball. The slower the spin, if you get a high spin, you usually cut underneath that sweet spot and you get high rotation and you probably lose 10 to 15 yards on a kickoff. The same thing with the, the, same thing with the drop punt. So what you're trying to do with a drop punt, rather than have it purely vertical, um, I would I, I want it probably 15 degrees out and how you get guys to do that is rather than bringing it into their thigh on the drop you try and get them to extend it out and if you take a kid with a drop punt drop the further he extends out the further the nose gets out and the further that ball leans back and there's a sweet a sweet point in between vertical and flat where you can make that thing slow down and not hit the point of the ball which Young kids get sort of discouraged if they get a bruise on their foot using the point. Yep. And um, and making pure contact. And you'll find if the kid can experiment with the ball out a little more than they're used to, um, you'll they'll find that sweet spot with that straight toe, uh, straight point, toe swing, straight toe point and leg swing. And uh, and once you get it a couple of times, you can see the light bulb go off over their head, and they're like, oh. That really came off nicely. So, um, so I would say mid, rather than inside the thigh, I would say mid thigh. Mid thigh, okay. 
Chris, are you are you specifically talking about two things here? Are you talking about an Aussie drop punt where the, where you're holding it uh, more so the middle or top of the ball, and it's and it's straight up and down like a drop punt? Yep. But they're telling that they're telling the bottom of the ball where the bottom of the ball is to the right and the top of the ball is to the left, and they're putting it a little out, like pointing out to the right, kind of? Uh, yeah, so yeah. So first part of the question was, obviously, where do you drop it in alignment with your thigh? And then the second part of the question was the lean of the ball. If You know, obviously, you you, know, you talked about the 15% lean, but uh, do, you, do you ever lean the ball? That's a 15% that's a lean back. Yep. But I, I don't recommend a sideways. When you're learning to drop pump, there's no sideways left or right of the. Uh, it should be it should be straight vertical with a with the nose lean the top lean back 15 degrees, but it should be straight up and down. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So the guys the guys that are doing that sideways lean, like the Johnny Heckers of the world, they they It's a, it's called an over the falls or a half banana, and what he's trying to do is he's punting sort of a diagonal ball. And he's having it come off like a drop pump, but then it swivels in the air and it turns over. And so they're doing that to make it hard for the guys to catch. There's a few guys that do it. That, and Cook does it when he does his walk right, punt left. And that's the other time, Chris, that that they do pull it. But that's when you're that's when you're well experienced at hitting a drop punt. If you're asking me about just hitting a straightaway drop punt for a kid. Then I would try and have that ball as straight as you possibly could. Perfect. I like it. What's What's more important, the drop or walking straight with compact steps? Oh, so uh, I, my Australian kid right now is he he fades to the right so bad and he pulls it back, but every time it hits, it's like a fifty-five yard drop punt. So I'm trying to get him because he wants to have every every club in the bag, right? So he wants to learn how to spiral, and he obviously has all the Aussie rules uh, history, and he fades to the right. So I'm trying to get him to go straight, and he has this beautiful straight leg swing with a beautiful straight toe point, but his drop punt goes 30 yards, and he looks at me and goes, well, I could do it this way, because he whips his leg so hard, and he makes such elite contact on it, he hits a 55-yarder straight after it. So I think... The hard part about it is you want them to have perfect technique, but I think when they're first learning, the result is just as important as the technique. And so whatever gives them the best possible result will keep them excited about doing it. That's a great answer. Nice. So, Darren, you're you're pretty involved with specialists. In your opinion, are there some specialists coming up to the college ranks you think got bright futures? And then who are some of your favorite NFL punters right now? So the answer is yes. I think there are some college kids uh, coming up through the ranks. Um, you know, Braden Mann, the kid who won the, the Ray Guy last year, um, traditionally Texas A&M punters uh, like Shane Leckler have been real just drive-bomb punters, you know, and and, um, and Braden Mann's, you know, last year I watched some of his hang times with those drives. And his hang times were matching the drives. And I mean, he had an incredible season last year. What Some of his punts hit, I watched him hit a 70-yard punt out of the end zone. And I thought it was one of the best punts I've ever seen. It was directional. It was 70 yards in the air. And it, and it was had hang time. And I'm like, that's a man's punt right there. So, you know, it, he, you know in college it's hard because you're, 
your situation dictates your your average. So some of these kids really average high, and some some have to hit short peach punts and affect your average. But um, I like the way he's going. I work a bit with a guy named Cody Grace, who is an Australian who's at Arkansas State. Um, Cody has a magnificent leg swing, and he's one of the few guys. I think last year he had zero return yards in the year. Wow. Um, he pretty much fair catch. They fair catch everything. So you know. Guys like that, um, I think, will, will, and plus Cody's 6'3", 250. He looks like a linebacker. And so guys like that, I think, will, will have the the, uh, the scouts sort of looking at them. But I think, you know, nowadays punting's become a multifaceted job. And if you look at all the guys nowadays that walk one way and punt back the other way and, you know, the ugly punt, ugly but effective punt is now crept from college into the NFL and coaches understand if you can get the ball on the ground and keep it out of someone like Antonio Brown's hands, um, that's a good thing. So I think, you know, some of these uh, misdirection punts and the, the what we used to call circus punts, um, guys are, are being allowed to do them and it's, it's pretty impressive to watch. How about NFL guys you like? I love Thomas Morstead. I think he's Thomas Morstead is, you know, he's an anomaly. He he's six foot six. He's he two steps the ball. Um, he's so precise with his drop. If you looked at a hundred Thomas Morstead drops, you'd have a hundred of the same drop. And I think, you know, that's sort of why some of these guys have to become. Um, multifaceted because I don't think they're really elite at any of them and I think Thomas Morstead is super elite at his job and I think you know that's why he's been at the Saints for a long time he's bailed them out so many times and I think he's uh, you know he's a tremendous punter and probably very underrated but but an, a, an essential part of that New Orleans Saints team he's super talented um so, Darren, we, we recently had one of your protégés on the podcast, uh, Brock Miller, right before his, uh, right before he got cut, like about a week, a week before he got cut. Um, really cool thing he had said uh, when we had asked him, you know, what do these free agents need to do or, or whatever to stick at this level? And he said, you know, talking to the special teams coordinator and some other teams that he's been with when they brought him in as a lefty to kick to the returners. Is that if, if they can if they can get distance, hang time, and location, if you can get two out of three, but for sure three out of three, if you can kind of think about it from that simple aspect, then then you have a chance to at least try to to get a workout. You know, so like, what do you think about that? Hearing that from Brock, and and then also your knowledge of college special teams coordinators and as well as NFL special teams coordinators as well. So I think I agree with Brock, and I, I watched Brock. I think he really benefited from Jim Fossil and uh, um, and um, his time at the Rams. I thought he punted really well. Uh, I watched him in the game at um, sorry John Fossil. Um, I watched him at the uh, the Raiders game, and I thought it was as good as I'd seen Brock punt. And uh, you know, I I was. Uh, really pushing for him um, at the Buffalo workout. He came in as one of the guys at Buffalo when they were when they had an open workout um, at the training camp. 
and unfortunately didn't pan as well up there. But it was um, it was good to hear his name in the mix. You know, I've known Brock since he was very young and, and uh, seen a lot of his journey. So, and uh, he's one of these guys that's really stuck it out. It's cool, you know. So I, I think it's great. Um, special teams coaches. Let me start with college. You know, the hard part of the way the NCAA is structured is they can only have a certain amount of guys on the field. So, like, I'm a, I'm a, I, I work technique with all my specialists, but I'm not on the field during the game. And I actually like it that way. You know, it's very crowded on the sideline. They don't need me down there. And I, I coach across the fence um, to my guys if I need, you know, if they need something a little technique-wise, I'll come down and just tell them to get their hips through the ball or whatever they need, you know. So... I'm happy to do it that way, and I don't go to away games. So, but it's a difficult thing because most special teams coaches coach another position because of the limit limits they have on guys. So, and some of the teams then uh, that do commit to special teams coaches, like John Baxter at uh, USC, you can see USC leads the league year after year in block punts, block field goals, punt returns for touchdowns, kickoff returns for touchdowns because. Someone like John Baxter, who he's the assistant head coach and special teams coordinator, is is far and away because he dedicates his whole week to scheming up against other teams and and uh, you know and he's very good at it. So the teams that commit to a full time special teams coordinator, you can see it definitely makes a difference in those games. But they're very very far few and far between in the NCAA. Yeah. So have you followed uh, the Scottish Hammer at all? Since he entered the league and obviously took took one of the spots with the Browns. Yeah, so uh, I watched him last night actually because he was I was watching Lock Edwards on Monday Night Football and the Scottish Hammer was punting on the other side. And, you know, Mike Prefer, you know, his dad took a chance on me as a guy who played Aussie Rules football, and so it's nice to see that you know maybe that there was a little bit of that in Mike knowing that. It's possible to have it happen, and, and this guy has been pretty good. And he's had, I think, seven or eight punts uh, in the regular season, and he's had zero returns. And so he's he's there for the right reasons. He's not there for his average. He's there to help his team uh, because he, you can see that he's sacrificing um, distance for hang time. And uh, But I think he's had a pretty cool start, and he's a great story, so... You know, he's got that long flowing locks. He looks like Braveheart out there punching. <laughs> <laughs> sure does. William Wallace. He does, doesn't he? He looks like he, he could be yelling out freedom every time he punches the ball. So I think that's cool. That's really cool. The more the more international people American football has, the better chance it has of surviving over the next 20 years. Nice. What do you think about kicking coaches um, making their way, kicking punting coaches making their way into NFL staffs uh, and... I don't know if it'll ever happen, but college football staffs like where it's it's almost like a it's a common thing. Like what you don't you you guys don't have a kicking coach? Like what's the deal? Like do you think it'll ever happen? Well, right now, but. Not, so Mike Cyprus is working with Kansas up at Les, Les Miles. Is, uh, loves having Mike just come in and help with his specialists. So I'm I'm here at Tulsa. There's a few coaches I suppose getting around. I think Matt Nelson works with Louisiana Tech. Um, as far as the NFL is concerned, I don't know. It's it's a, such a specialised position. You look at the guys that are coaching, that are kicking coaches. I think it's great to pass your knowledge on. I really do. You know, and, and I do that 
in the background with guys, it's it's so hard because you can't always be a player. That's you know not all good players are good coaches. Um, but it also when you've got young punters and kickers, it's great to have someone with experience on that staff that can be a go between between the special teams coach and the kicker. And I think that takes a bit of pressure off. John Carney did that at New Orleans when he was there. Um, and Nick Novak's doing it at the Chargers, and I assume Chris Boney, although that we're at, at Tampa where he's at, is a lot of it is, you know, working technique with your kickers and making sure that, you know, they're mentally um, okay for the week. But a lot of times when you have a young kicker, you need someone between the special teams coach who just, you know, a lot of special teams coaches don't know much about the technique of the game. They know about the effectiveness of the game and, and, you know, if you kick a touchback, that's great for me. If you kick a 50-yard field goal, that's awesome. They don't know much about making you do it or stopping you from missing it. So, you know, the more the more specialised the NFL comes becomes as it becomes more technical, I think the better it'll be. Now, you have to work out whether the guy's in there for his, you know, media profile and, his, and what he's doing or whether he's in there for the actual good of, of the kickers and punters. There'll always be those guys that, you know, the website guys that, that someone believes is the best kicking coach in the world. You know who I'm talking about. Right. And, um, and they're in there driving more people to their kicking camps, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a great kicking coach. Do you think kickoffs or any of the kicking tiers will get taken out of the game in the next five, ten years? Yes. Uh, I mean, the XFL's going to do it this year, I think, aren't they? I don't think the XFL's going to have kickoffs. They're talking about not having kickoffs. Yeah, I think you have to get up for debate, for sure. Yeah, look in, you, know, you look at in college now, you can fair catch anywhere within the 20, you know, 25 yard line. You fair catch, you get the ball on the 25, and I think eventually they're just going to place the ball on the 25 and let you go. So, so, Thinking about that, hypothetically, you know, because we, we've heard some interesting opinions about this, and it's like it's everywhere. You know, it's it's leaning more towards still being in the game for a little bit, towards eventually getting out. It's from from credible people like we've spoken with you and Jay Feely and others. So, do you still think field goals and punts will still still stick for a while? I think field goals will. I think field goals will always be a part of the game. I could see punts going the same way as kickoffs. I really could. I think it's... I'm not sure how you would deal with that. You know, I I think there's there's a great excitement to a kickoff and to a punt. uh, But there's also, you know, the more they know about concussions a lot of those big concussions happen on these open field plays on special teams where guys have 50, 60, 70 yards to run and and those collisions that happen are big collisions. So, you know, the more that concussions become part of the game, the more they try to work out how to eliminate them, you know, the more they start looking at, you know, we don't, you see the changes they've made in the last four or five years with, you know, having guys having to stand within one yard of the line having guys not be more than 15 yards off the ball because they're trying to eliminate those 50 yards, 
you know, I run 50, you run 50, and we smash heads against each other. They're trying to eliminate that play. Right. So if this if this incarnation of the kickoff as it is doesn't eliminate that, then I think they will start to look towards eliminating the kickoff. Oh, that's crazy. That uh, is crazy. Because it's not football. Yeah. It's the only part of the game that requires a foot on the ball. It's football. You can't call it football after that if you do it. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting because the AAF didn't do kickoffs, right? I mean, all, all they did was right. punts and field goals, and and it seemed, it, it obviously to all of us, I mean, like it seemed weird, but I think for them maybe and maybe TV timeouts and all that, I don't know, but maybe it, it worked for them. But yeah, it's just it's a little it's a little uh, depressing, a little sad. If, if, yeah, look, uh, I see things. I see things creeping into the game now, like Will, my son Will. He watches Red Zone. It frustrates the heck out of me because I want to see the kicks and the punts. That's all I'm watching the game for. I don't care about touchdowns. <laughs> so for Red Zone, they, they turn it off. They go to commercial break. They're like, that. Uh, the Cleveland Browns had to punt, and they leave. And you're like, well, it's part of the game, but it's not a part they care about. And so I can see even the me- the way the media drives the game is like, well, that that's not an important thing. And even on some of the telecasts, you'll miss a punt because there'll be some sort of issue in the game and they'll just come back and the other team's got the ball and you're like, how did they get that ball? You're like, oh, well, there was a punt but we just didn't show it. It happened during the commercial break. Yeah. And it frustrates me at times because when you see like replays, I'll watch the replay of a game on, on NFL Network, they'll just breeze over the punts or they'll breeze over the kickoffs like they're not part of the game. So you can see there's a, a lean towards it not being part of the football game. What, but what's interesting is you go to the grocery store or whatever or you just see kind of marketing materials and the field goal upright is basically like the iconic image of football, you know, if you have to have some sort of still image. You well, know, that's or, my thing. Is, so if you eliminate the kicks, do you eliminate the uprights? I mean, now what are we doing? What is this? <laughs> now, you're out, now you're out in the field somewhere. Mm-hmm. You're not, it's not a football field. So that's right. why I think... PATs and field goals will always have to be part of the game. Yeah. Nice. Well, Darren, we got some fun questions because you played during Brian and I's era of high school and college years. So I remember you playing, and obviously you spent two years with the Vikings, so I remember that as well. But uh, just some fun questions about your career. Who are some of the best punt returners you ever went against? Oh, man. <laughs> so um, I, I punted to Dante Hall. Nice. Uh, Tim Brown. Oh, yeah. Dion Sanders. Um, and uh, a guy named Tamarick Vanover. And Tamarick Vanover was the kickoff returner and punt returner at Kansas City. And he came and played for the Chargers for a year. And I got to, and he was the nicest man in the world. But he took me to the house on Monday Night Football. And it was the only, it was the first Monday Night Football game decided in overtime by a punt return for a touchdown. And I grabbed, I grabbed hold of him to try and tackle him, and he was so strong, he just ripped me straight off the back of his shoulder pads, and I was like, wow. So, um, you know, those sort of guys were just, I think, honestly, so if we get back to the Aussie rules part of, of college football, now the guys kicking the ball on the ground so much, my theory is there's not a lot of great punt returners coming out of college now. Because when everyone used to spiral the ball up in the air, a punt returner would get four years worth of catches, maybe 30 or 40 catches a year, 
And nowadays, he's down to like 10 to 15 opportunities to return the punt because guys punt the ball on the ground. So you don't see a lot of Tyreek Hills, you know, Tyreek Hill, and here's how you know there's not a lot of Tyreek Hills. Anyone that plays against the Kansas City Chiefs when Tyreek Hills return the ball, their special teams coach freaks out that week. I want to punt it out of bounds. I want him 35 yards fair catch. I don't, I don't want him to touch the ball because there's not a lot of those guys that scare anyone anymore. And so when we, when we, when I was punting the AFC West, I had um, Joey Galloway, Tim Brown, uh, Tamarick Vanover. You know, so everyone was legit. Everyone, if you hit the ball down the middle. Everyone was a chance to take it to the house every time. It was scary every week. Do you think punt and kick returners should be in the Hall of Fame then? The, the really good ones, yes. The, you know, Desmond Howard. And, um, uh, who else? I mean, Tim Brown is, but he's as a wide receiver. But those guys, you know, it, it, nowadays the primary receiver doesn't necessarily return punts much. When he does, you can see why he's the primary receiver because guys that have never caught punts before get get out there and you know they're a chance every time. So the answer is yes. I think there should be more punters in the in the Hall of Fame. I think there's guys that are you know Shane Leckler now obviously will be will be seen as uh, probably the next guy that should go in. Um, but yes, I think until you have every position that's played in the last few years represented up there. And not represented at their position, but guys that were punt returners, kick returners, long snappers. David Bin should be in the Hall of Fame. People go, ah, oh, what the? What are you talking about? David Bin played 19 years and had zero bad snaps in 19 years. That's that's Dang. pretty elite, to me, you know. <laughs> I oh. didn't even know that. Yeah. So you know those. Yes, absolutely. I think punt returners should be in the game. It, it, I mean. If you're going to use them on highlight reels of 100-yard punt returns for touchdowns or 99-yard punt returns for touchdowns, then they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, absolutely. That's a great argument there. Uh, through your years playing, you played 11 years. Actually, before I ask this question, I had heard that there's only been something like 1,000 NFL players that have played 10 or, year, or more years in the NFL, something like crazy like that. Oh, really? Um, wow. So it's not that many guys. If you think about how large the teams are and how much it turns over, but uh, um, so over I your, wanna know, I want to know, know how many of those guys played ten years that were thirty as as a rookie. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So yeah. out of your eleven years, who are who have been some of your favorite teammates, like just over the years, and then do you keep in touch with them? Yeah. So uh, some of my favorite teammates, Steve Christie. Um, Steve Christie it was my last year in San Diego. He came across after uh, we had Wade Ritchie as our kicker, and, and uh, it was great. So I, I love Steve Christie. I talk to him still. Lorenzo Neal was one of my favorite guys uh, when I was at San Diego. Lorenzo used to start his off-season workouts with me the very first day he'd come in, and he said, Lorenzo's thing, and Lorenzo's nominated for the Hall of Fame this year, and, and rightfully so. I think he had he's had twelve out of his sixteen years, he had twelve thousand yard rushes behind him. Mm-hmm. But Lorenzo, what he would do is he would come in and go, "Mate, we're going to get some workout." And I'm like, "Oh, Lorenzo Neal wants to work out with me." And really, what he was doing was he hadn't lifted weights since the end of the season, and he was using me or he, uh, only light weights. He would use me as his wake up. So he'd work out with me for a couple of days, and then he'd come up and he'd go, mate, I've got to go. 
and he would go over and he'd work out with the DBs, and he would finish his preseason working out with the linemen. But that was how he how he got himself ready for the season, because he said, "Look, you have to shut it down." He, he didn't agree with the twelve months of the year professional athlete thing, and I think that's part of the reason he was so good for so long because he would take time away from the game. So I love Loneal, and then uh, my last year in Minnesota, I had Morton Anderson, and Morton was Morton was just uh, you know the myth of Morton Anderson is this man that was put on a pillar and and you know, it was you know came from Denmark and and was uh, and, and now he's in the Hall of Fame and he was the nicest man I think I'd ever met. So uh, I had a, we had a great year with Morton. He he would come over and Rosemary would cook dinner for him every Thursday night and he would bring a, a you know two hundred dollar bottle of wine with him that I didn't appreciate. But it was terrific to to hang out with Morton and and really uh, enjoy being with him. So and then I always got on really well with my offensive line. Uh, I don't know why, uh, maybe because a lot of those guys are just big country boys, but, you know, all my, uh, Courtney Hall and, and uh, Joe Cacuzzo and all those guys at San Diego when I first got there, I had a great time with those guys. They were really good teammates. Nice. Okay, so then over your 11 years, what are a few of your favorite experiences that, like, if you were just kind of reflecting on the on the career, what, what are some that stand out? Um, so... A few. I mean, I played in a, a few of the American Bowls. You know, so we played. I played in Germany. I played in Australia. I played in Tokyo. Um, just seeing that, seeing how American football is seen around the world, was was cool to me. Um, I made a couple of tackles in my career, so any time I made a tackle, I felt like a real football player. <laughs> and uh, you know, my my neck and shoulders are probably paying for it now being on scout team and, and making tackles and stuff. But, um, you know, any time a specialist can get in and make a tackle, it sort of legitimizes you as a football player. So I used to enjoy doing that. Uh, any time I played at the Raiders, I, I used to love the Raiders games. I used to always average pretty well up at the Raiders because I was so upset and full of adrenaline. I, I think I swung too hard every time I played up there because they, they would say nasty things about you, but it was so much fun playing at the Raiders. So... I, uh, I actually saw the other night was my very first game was the very first game the Raiders played back in Oakland after they left Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I, I, play, I played on that dirt field. So for them to play their last game the other night on the dirt field, I was like, I hated that field. But I, I, you know, I hated the Raiders fans at the time, but I loved them at the time too. They're cool. Nice. Hey, Darren, when going, looking at the holding, and obviously holding's a integral part for punters um the guys that you helped for in the league like were there any that like they didn't care how it was held or were they like super specific or particular like maybe talk about that so the cool thing for me was john carney when i first started john carney was a legend and he he'd just broken the nfl record for the most consecutive field goals and so i learned john carney's hole what he wanted was how i learned and so it was great to have him for a few years and I felt sorry for the poor kids that would come to training camp every year because they'd like, oh, I like it it's a little straight. I'm like, no, you don't you like it like this? And they're like, how's that? And I'm like, that's John Carney's hold and he's our kicker, so that's the hold you're going to get. I'm not going to adjust <laughs> my hold for you because this is the hold you're going to get. So I felt sorry for these poor kids because they're coming in thinking they're competing with John Carney. I'm like, you get John Carney's hold, that's it. Um, and so... 
Um, holding for me was was something I tried to take pride in, and I'm not sure that I was great at it. But you know, I, I sort of became proficient at it over the years. But it's super important, and I know guys that haven't got NFL jobs over the years because they were not good holders. And so, you know, being and then Steve Christie, Steve Christie was a soccer player that played at William and Mary, and I said to Steve, "How do you like a hold?" And he said, "On the ground." <laughs> so and. Because Steve would literally wouldn't do steps. So Steve would really eyeball the kick. So he didn't really care. He used to say to me, mate, you put it down, I'll put it through. And so that relaxed me as well because I'm like, Steve just wants it however it, you know, however it comes. Now, you're still trying to be great for him, but that was, you know. So that's the difference of John Carney, who was very structured with his hold, but, but taught me to everyone take blame. If something goes wrong, John goes, that was on me. And I'm like, that was a horrible hold. That was on me. And David Bin's like, with a perfect snap, dude, that was my fault. Like, all three of us would take blame for it, you know. So, <laughs> um, so then Steve Christie, who's like, you know, just put it down on the ground and I'll kick it through. So, you know, they were, they were my two favorite guys to hold for. Yeah. We might be getting David Eggers here soon on the podcast, but we've, we've heard some things about David and how, how, he, how specific he wanted his ball held. I mean, have yes. you heard of any, or even not even just David, just any other kickers that you knew or punters that had a specific so Morton, way? Yeah, so Morton Anderson wanted to see a big ball. So Morton actually wanted it left forward. And I was I was not a great holder for left footer, so I didn't hold for Morton when I was at Minnesota. Um, Gus Farrot held for him and Brad Johnson held for him, actually. So, um, But Morton wanted to see a big football. So most guys would have the ball, you know, vertical with a tilt to the side, Morton wanted it with a tilt and side, but he wanted it forward because he oh. said he, he, he if you get it regular, and Morton had a size 12 shoe, and so he said it with a big foot, he felt like even if the ball was just straight up and down, he would have to scoop out underneath it. So that's why he wanted it forward because he wanted to see the sweet spot on the ball and swing through. So he was oh. different to any other hold that I'd ever ha- had, but he was very specific on his hold. Cool. Um, I never had look. I know Sav Rocker held for David Akers at Philly, and Sav was very good at holding, and so I think David really liked him. But David's very particular. I know. Look, all these guys that are good at their job, they want it done a certain way because that's why they're good at their job. You know, their attention to detail is second to none, and and so some people go, oh, he's really particular with his hold. I'm like, that's because he's thirty four or thirty seven. You know, that's he, he wants it the right. same so that he can, he can be good at his job. So, you know, I, right. I never begrudged a guy that was particular with their holds because that I'm... But I always felt more pressure holding than I did punting because I knew that if I screwed up, I'm screwing up John Carney's job or Steve Christie's job, whereas if I'm punting, I'm only screwing up my own job, you know? So I felt a lot more pressure to hold than I did to punt. Yeah. Interesting. You know, one thing that's fun for us as kicking coaches over the years is is we talk about the special teams fraternity and I think social media helps quite a bit because guys stay in touch with each other and even guys we interview on the podcast you know they always talk about guys that they talk to in the league and all that stuff but growing up in an age where there was no social media did you chit chat with the specialists on the other team you know pre-game or halftime or did you guys just kind of do your own thing no I always love to chat to to guys I, I would I love meeting guys at half, you know, at 50, 50 yard line and chatting to them about 
how things are going and what their special teams coach is like and you know what it's like living in whatever city they came from or uh, you know I was in playing against them so no it was uh, I think and that's really aside from that or maybe the odd charity golf tournament where you would see another kicker very rarely would you bump into other guys so nowadays you know you guys are so interconnected everyone can contact everyone in a heartbeat so you know one of the best things I think I've ever done was when Ray Guy was inducted to the Hall of Fame, Greg Coleman uh, put together a group of guys and said, you know, if you, if you want to come up, it's the first punter ever to go in. And I think there was 20 kickers that went up, uh, 20 punters and kickers that went up and supported Ray when he went into the Hall of Fame. And to spend three days with those guys was such a cool thing because there's guys you played against that, you, you know, you knew them a little bit. There was guys you knew well and so that fraternity of guys that sort of came together and we all wore a shirt with Ray's number on it and it was cool. So, you know, I, I hope that that happens more often um, in the future because I think, you know, the fraternity of kickers and punters, no one's respected us for years. And so, you know, we've got to hang out together. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we always like to end our interviews with our simple question, Darren. And we're going to kind of switch it up a little bit for you. Um, What's your three favorite stadiums you punted in, and also your three least favorite stadiums you played in? <laughs> let me start with the let me start with the bad ones. Um, so Buffalo is is a difficult place to play. Uh, it's the closest I've ever come to whiffing in a punt because it's so windy. And uh, you know, I was talking about Steve Christie. My thing as a holder. Once the ball comes off the foot, you can sort of tell if it's going through or not. I would stand up and shake the hand of the kicker. So Steve Christie crushes a kick um, into the open side of the stadium. And I was like, yeah, it was 44 yards. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. That's good from 50. And I went to stand up and shake Steve's hand and he goes, wait for it. And it got to the end zone and it stopped dead in the wind and fell like seven yards short. And I'm like, how did you know? And he goes, yeah, they never go through from this end. So oh. I hated punting in Buffalo. Um, I I didn't like Chicago, and it wasn't for the wind in Chicago. I just didn't like the feel of that stadium. It was sort of when they when they remodeled Soldier Field, I didn't like it. And then um, and then Candlestick. I, Candlestick was always difficult for me. I didn't like uh, I didn't like punting in Candlestick because it was you would sit in dead air. And then a gust of like 20 miles an hour would hit you. So it was always a difficult place to control my punt. So um, is that the three that I did. Is Candlestick, is that the 49ers stadium? It was the 49ers stadium, yeah. And, and they used to play the, um, the uh, Giants used to, before the Giants had Minute Maid Park, uh, sorry, before Giants had their own baseball stadium, I can't remember what they call it now, they, they played. So you would punt on the dirt at San Francisco in preseason too. So... You know, there was a lot more stadiums that shared baseball fields when we when I first started playing it. And so San Francisco had sort of this mushy clay that stuck to your cleats and and the wind issues. So, yeah, I never liked playing at the 49ers. So and the three stadiums I loved playing at, I used to love the old Indianapolis, um, the, the dome in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. because... It, it had a more natural light than all the other domes, and so you sort of felt like you were outside, whereas some of the domes have, like, this artificial light. It's really, you know, you're inside. Right. Um, I used to love I used to love punting in, 
uh, Oakland. I, I love the Raiders Stadium. I just, so I already talked about it, but the Raiders fans would get the media guide and they would find out your kids' names, your wife's name. They would yell, yell all sorts of stuff at you. I tell all the kids, I punted out of the, in front of the black hole and they frisbee quarters at my head and they were, I'm standing there trying to catch a snap and we're on like a three yard line. So I'm right under the uprights. And I can feel the coins bouncing off my helmet. Oh, man. Wow. And I crushed the punt, and I turned around and looked down, and there was probably $2 in change sitting on my feet. So it was, uh, if you punted well at the Raiders, you, you, um, you know, you, you, you know you've done well. Um, obviously, Denver was a great place to punt because it was elevation, so I'm not even going to talk about Denver. But my favorite place to punt was Qualcomm Stadium. And, and... Because it was my home stadium, it was a great stadium. But if someone had said to me after seven years in the NFL, okay, you get to choose anywhere to live and anywhere to punt, then I would have chosen San Diego. And so, you know, I'm sad that they've moved up, up the up the road and there's no team in San Diego, but I, I loved punting in that stadium. That was my favourite place to punt. And I knew every inch of that stadium because it was my stadium, so I, I really enjoyed it. Had you... Played in every single stadium by the end of your career. The only one I haven't played in, I didn't play. I never played in Raymond James in the Bu- the Buccaneers stadium. I played in every other stadium, but for some reason we'd never played an away game at uh, at the Buccaneers. So I never played in front of the uh, in front of the ship. Nice, well, awesome, Darren. We want to thank you for being on the podcast. This was uh, this was awesome. Obviously, it's been fun to get to know you over the years as well, and. Hopefully we continue staying in touch, but uh, we really appreciate the knowledge that you've given. You know, we got a lot of specialists that listen to this, so I know they're going to enjoy this interview. No worries, guys. It's great to chat to you, and uh, you know, let's catch up more often. Let's do it. Thanks, Darren. All right, see you guys. All right, see you later, man. Man, love that guy. That's a great experience, man. Just a wonderful interview. Definitely a top five for me. Yeah, I loved it. And uh, what was cool about it is he clarified a lot of misconceptions or just questions we had, or probably anybody has, on, on the Aussie-style punts out there. And So hopefully you guys all take something from this interview because I definitely learned more, and I'll, I'll probably become a better kicking and punting coach because of this as well. Agreed. Same here. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, we got a great lineup of interviews uh, lined up, so... Yeah, thanks for your continued support, and keep sharing the interview, and, and, and we'll see you guys next week. Later. Later. Thank you for listening to the 4th Down Experience. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 4th Down Experience.